Father God, thank you so much for not leaving us in the dark in this world, but revealing yourself to us and giving us your word, the word of life. Please open our eyes by your spirit to your word, Father, and in your mercy, please help us to live it out. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Leadership. Leadership is a crucially important thing, isn't it? Whether you're talking about a small thing that's being led, like a a local sports team by its captain or a mighty nation uh, with a king or queen or or president leadership can affect everything about it now in the early days of the church Christ sent men called apostles and they were the ones who were used by him to lead uh, and build the church but what would happen when they died out who would be entrusted to lead God's people here on earth after they'd gone now that might sound in a pretty big um, massive task in itself but when you consider that God's people the church us his ambassadors are, are his ambassadors and we have the job of bringing God's message of salvation to the needy world well when you consider that you see something of what's at stake so putting ourselves in the time of the very early church who were the apostles like Paul who we'll meet in a bit who will they hand over to now does anyone know the name of the chap who's on the screen? You can just about pick him out. Um, anyone? Any takers? Oh, come on. You guys get out too much. Don't watch enough DVDs. Okay, maybe, maybe the picture isn't clear enough. Okay, he's a very famous chap. Um, he's uh, meet Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius. Yes, him. Uh, from the film Gladiator. Uh, you see him here, uh, caught on camera by uh, some of the world's very first embedded war photographers. Um, as he he surveys uh, the plains of Germania in the beginning of the film Uh, he's there uh, behind the Praetorian Guard his personal bodyguards now there really was a Roman Emperor called Marcus Aurelius Uh, he ruled the Roman Roman Empire um, in the 2nd century and was known as the philosopher Um, but sadly uh, the rest of the film is pure fiction Um, but it's a helpful example for us so we'll follow it for a bit now, Marcus Aurelius, as you can see, he's quite, quite an old man, and he knows he doesn't have long to live. Um, and so, um, um, uh, and he, he knows that the natural assumption will be for his son, Commodus, uh, there, uh, to be the next emperor. Uh, Commodus, that's Commodus, he's looking a little bit bored, uh, quite unimpressed. And... <laughs> Never mind. Um, so that, that's Commodus. And uh, uh, now Marcus Aurelius does not want him uh, to be emperor. Instead, he's got a different plan. He wants the Senate to rule Rome instead. So he wants Rome to become a republic under the Senate, rather than the empire it was under him. So as the emperor hands over to the Senate, the Senate receive the leadership of Rome, but they have to exercise it in, in a very different way to Marcus Aurelius, because they are senators and not emperors. They're accountable to each other and to the people of Rome, not to not supreme autocratic rulers like the emperor was. And of course, there's another very important character in the story, and this guy is a little bit easier to identify. Uh, who's that chap? Any takers? Yeah, okay, I got some. The answer is not Russell Crowe. Um, I got some right answers. It's Maximus. That's right. His name is. Wait for it. Wait for it. Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix legions, loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, etc., etc. You see, Marcus Aurelius didn't have time to manage the handover uh, himself um, to the Senate. So he appoints General Maximus as the protector of Rome. 
His job is to ensure that power really does get handed over to the Senate. Maximus is not an emperor either, but he is merely to be a steward of power until the Senate is ready to take on the the rule of Rome as a republic. But of course, it's never that simple. It wouldn't make a good film if that's all there was to it. Um, Instead, the Commodus, the emperor's son, who has missed out on power, has other plans. There's Commodus looking looking rather nasty, um, and he does not respect the emperor's wishes for the next generation of rule. He reckons he'd be rather a good leader. And so with cunning, deceit, and no small amount of violence, he seeks power for himself, contrary to all his father wanted. And as we start our series in 1 Timothy today, we see a similar transfer of leadership and a similar threat for God's people in the very early church. So as we move on to our second section, we see who the characters are in 1 Timothy. Who are the characters in 1 Timothy? And this, this is a true story. Well, first of all, we have Paul, who identifies himself as the writer of the letter in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And as an apostle, Paul held special, unquestionable authority. Now, he had this not because he was from a particular family, um, not because he went to the right kind of prestigious college, not because he was the most popular among the people. No, he had special authority because it was given him by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Verse 1 continues. An apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Saviour, and of Christ Jesus our hope. The word apostle isn't exactly in everyday use, is it? You're not not going to see it on a billboard whilst driving around KL. So what does Paul mean when he says he's an apostle? Well, the word literally means a sent one. Someone who is sent and who carries the authority of the person who sent him. So when we talk about the apostles, with a big A as it were, that is sent from Jesus Christ, it's a really big deal. Because they had been met by the risen Lord Jesus and were sent with his authority to lead and build the church. And Paul was one of these. He was made an apostle in the most dramatic way of them all. The the famous on the road to Damascus incident. In Acts 9 we read that whilst on his way to arrest a load of Christians in Damascus, he was knocked off his horse or whatever it was. He was riding by a, a blinding light and was met by the risen Lord Jesus. He was graciously converted and made an apostle, sent with the full authority of Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, God's prophets spoke God's words. Thus says the Lord, they could say. And it's the same with the apostles in the New Testament. They spoke God's word too. So much so, in fact, that in Ephesians 20 on the screen, it says that the church, the household of God, verse 20, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So, Paul has been commissioned as an apostle by Jesus and speaks God's words. But also, like Marcus Aurelius, Paul is a leader with great responsibility and needs to work out how to hand over to the next generation. So so what are his options? Should he first appoint other apostles who can lead the church in exactly the same way he did? he's, He's laid a pattern, they could follow it. Or second, should the church be left without specific leaders, after all? power can only corrupt and they've got enough scripture so surely they can just work it out amongst themselves work as a big team well Paul does neither rather like Marcus Aurelius Paul appoints leaders to take over but they are not to have the same apostolic authority he does 
And like Marcus Aurelius, Paul doesn't have the time to personally hand over power, uh, rule, um, responsibility to each of, the, each of the people he needs to, to look after and lead such a big church. So Marcus Aurelius appoints a protector, Maximus, to ensure that power went to the Senate. And similarly, Paul commissions Timothy to ensure that the leadership of the local church in Ephesus passes on to the right people who are to lead in the right way once Paul, the last of the apostles, is gone. And so we meet this, we meet this character, our second character, um, in verse 2. Timothy, the protector. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, in verse 2. Now, as far as we know, Paul had no uh, natural children of his own. But he did have Timothy, his true child in the faith. Now, at one level, it could certainly refer to just the fact that they both, well, shared the same faith. They both knew that by themselves... Uh, they were guilty of rebelling against God, not treating him as they should with the love and obedience of their whole lives. They both knew that Jesus Christ, God the Son, came and lived on earth, fully human yet without sin, and died in the place of sinners. He died on the cross, taking the punishment of death and rejection from God in their place. And both, both Paul and Timothy turned from their sin and trusted in, uh, in Jesus' death. They have that in common with each other, just as they have with every Christian believer ever. But Timothy's relationship to Paul goes beyond that, um, more so than the relationship any Christian has between each other. In Acts, we know that Timothy uh, joined Paul on on his missionary journeys. And when you understand that closeness they had, uh, my true child in the faith would be a fitting term uh, for someone who is Paul's follower or apprentice. Timothy was Paul's faithful follower, learning the gospel, godly living, and gospel leadership through Paul's teaching and example. So it's Timothy who is a faithful follower, whom Paul has deemed the right person uh, to hand over the leadership um, to the next generation of leaders. And in a few weeks' time, we'll be introduced to our equivalent of the Senate, um, in this case the overseers and deacons, the future church leaders. But in today's passage, we come across the other big character. Uh, In Gladiator, um, Commodus... He wanted power, he wanted rule, and he did everything he could to get it. And instead of Commodus, in 1 Timothy, we have certain persons who think they should be church leaders, but actually are a real danger to the church. Maximus had a rather long and difficult struggle against Commodus uh, to make sure he didn't finally end up in control of the Roman Empire. And similarly, Timothy will have a long fight uh, to keep these certain persons from being a danger to the church. And uh, that brings us on to our third section, the command, the command from Paul to Timothy. Be faithful to Christ by fighting false teaching. Be faithful to Christ by fighting false teaching. Uh, Let's have a look at verses 3 to 4 again. Paul says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promotes speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, Paul's certainly not beating around the bush here, is he? He's not asking Timothy to go for any half measures. In essence, what he's saying is something along these lines. Timothy, stay on in Ephesus and get all those people who are teaching anything different from I am to shut up. That's really important because false teaching is a reality. False teaching is a reality, and Paul certainly isn't being open-minded or tolerant towards it, is he? No, he's being very clear. There is something true, 
That's the apostolic gospel. There's something false, what these guys are teaching, and there's no room for both of them. Not a very popular or trendy message today, is it? Here in Malaysia, with the cultural and religious mix of peoples we have, we're strongly encouraged to see each other's points of views as acceptable alternatives, to view other people's religious convictions as equally valid, and certainly not to try and convert others to our beliefs. We're told to sacrifice the truth for the sake of society. Postmodernism is another popular idea nowadays, and that says that there's, well, there's just no such thing as real objective truth. And so for the postmodernist, for anyone to claim they know the truth about something, is horrendously arrogant, even more so when you say that everyone else is in the wrong. So on the other hand, we're told to sacrifice our convictions on truth because truth, the postmodernist says, doesn't even exist. But friends, this is really not an option for the Christian. Why? Because God is true. He is real. He exists. And he deserves to be known, honoured and worshipped. He made the universe in all its splendour. He made us in his own image and gave us life. He owns us. He loves us. And he's given us every good thing. So the fact that people do not honour, worship and obey him with their whole lives, well, that's a crime. It's a travesty of justice on an eternal and cosmic scale. And if that weren't enough... He's even given us his son to save us from the punishment we deserve for this horrific crime. Jesus Christ, in very nature God, came and dwelt among us as a man. He lived our life and he perfectly revealed God the Father to us. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those are Jesus' words in John 14:6. So Jesus is true. He is real and he deserves to be honoured, worshipped and obeyed. So compromising the truth is just not an option for believers. We cannot believe Jesus is just one option amongst many. No, he is the only saviour and he is the true king who must be obeyed. He must be proclaimed to the world. And compromising the truth certainly was not an option for Timothy. Paul says he must stay on in Ephesus to stop certain people who teach different things to Paul. Now, why is this such a big deal? Why is Paul so protective of his own teaching? Isn't it a bit egotistic? Well, we have to remember that the apostles are not just normal Christian teachers. They're apostles, and so Paul's teaching has special apostolic authority. Paul's teaching has apostolic authority. So it's not the same as if Andrew or Tim or anyone else were to say, so-and-so doesn't agree with me, throw him out. You see, they are godly, faithful teachers of God's word, but they're not apostles. They can only demand faithfulness to, well, to God's word. Not that people be faithful to them or, or their own teaching. But the apostles, on the other hand, they could demand faithfulness to their own teaching because their teaching was the very word of God. So if a church really bases its belief and its teaching on the apostles, essentially on the New Testament, it is a true, genuine church. Take it that away, and it's not. The so-called church, that so-called church, which is not based on on the apostles, well, it's an empty shell or a puff of smoke. Nothing of any worth or substance at all. And certainly not part of the body of Christ. And in fact, it's worse than nothing. It's an offence to God and it misrepresents him to the world. And it deceives the people within it who think they know God and are saved. Because if they don't know the God of the Bible through the Bible, 
then they can't know God and they can't be saved. So, the apostles spoke God's word and carried his authority and could demand faithfulness to their own teaching just as the prophets did in the Old Testament because to oppose them is to oppose God himself. So in our Old Testament reading from two kings, we've got the wicked, idolatrous King Ahaziah and he sends some of his heavies, his army or police, to arrest Elijah by telling him that he should not have sought prophecy from an idol. Ahaziah certainly does not, he doesn't, respect the word of Elijah, God's prophet. No, he opposes him. And do you remember, when Ahaziah's captain and his 50 uh, approached Elijah, they were killed in quite stunning fashion. Fire came down from heaven exactly in accordance with Elijah's words. If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then, fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. It's only when the third captain who humbled himself before Elijah, he survived. Now, if you ignore part of the apostles' teaching, you probably won't be immediately consumed by fire from heaven. But actually, you're in a worse situation. That's the worst of your problems, because if you, if you ignore part of the apostles' teaching, you are opposing God. If you reject it, you are in great peril of eternal fire yourself. And you are a danger to others. But it's not just things which are clearly contrary to the Apostles' teaching which can be a danger. Let's have a look at verse 4 again. Timothy is to charge certain persons not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, the word speculation here means controversy as well, something that causes arguments and divides people. And it's completely contrary to what God really wants, the stewardship that is by faith. See, there are many things we can talk about that we think are important and spiritual, but can actually lead us severely off track. Because it's not only open heresy that's dangerous, but anything that leads us away from the centrality of Christ. So Timothy is to stop these people who teach things that are opposed to the apostles' teaching and those who peddle this other, this other kind of dangerous chatter. But it's also something we should stop too. Of course, we're not quite in the same situation Timothy was, and most of us don't have the responsibility of local church leadership, but we do have our role to play today. We do have our own role to play today. You see, first of all, we might actually need to stop ourselves. If we realise that we're guilty of undermining the teaching of the apostles and prophets, i.e. the Bible, or if we find ourselves chatting about things that produce vain speculations, doubts or arguments, anything that, that doesn't, build up people, uh, doesn't build people up in faith in Jesus, well, we need to stop that right away. And if we realise that others are doing so, we should point this out to them, implore them to stop and pray for them too. We should also be discerning about, about who and what we listen to. Now, thankfully, at SMAC, I believe we have faithful teachers in Andrew and the other guys. But if you reckon I, or anyone else who speaks here, is teaching a different doctrine to Paul, then don't listen to him and challenge him about it. And sometimes, I'm afraid, a fight might actually be required. <laughs> Not a physical one. But when someone is being a real danger and refusing to, to stop speaking falsehood, then it's going to take quite an effort to stop the cancer of their false teaching from spreading to the whole body. 
And in that situation, we need to make sure we're on the right side. We need to make sure we're supporting the Timothys in our fellowship as they fight and contend for the truth. Because that is being a good steward for God. And it's really important for the sake of others. We need to fight for the truth and we need to fight for false, uh, we need to fight false teaching. But how could Timothy tell if a certain person's teaching or talk is something that needs to be stopped? And how can we? Well, there are a couple of tests we can use. A couple of tests. The first is one we've seen already, uh, fairly obvious, to test the source. Is this teaching, is it from God? That is, is it apostolic or is it from elsewhere? So when we read a Christian book, uh, listen to a sermon, or, or talking about spiritual matters with friends, we should pay careful attention uh, to what is written or being said and ask ourselves, is this in accordance with the Bible? Because if it's not, it should be rejected. So if I were to say that salvation could be found in other religions, or that oh, Jesus wasn't fully human and fully divine, or he didn't really rise from the dead, or God won't really judge people, or if I said that all people are basically good, or that God has spoken to me and told me that the Bible is not quite right on a certain point and God has given me the truth which is different, or if I say that believing in Christ is not enough to be saved but you need to belong to a certain denomination or obey certain traditions, then, or anything else which is contrary to sound doctrine, then I would be like Commodus. I'll be a threat and a danger and I should be stopped. So that, that, that's one side of things, the things which are openly anti-apostolic. But the dangerous talks like myths and genealogies, well, they weren't necessarily contrary to the apostles' teaching. They were about well, nothing in particular. That's the whole point of them. But it was dangerous because it was still drawing people away from assured faith in Christ. It promoted speculations. And so we need the second test, the test of love. Does the teaching promote love that comes from faith in Christ? Or does it produce speculations and conflict? Take a look again at verses 5 and 6. The aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. You see, these certain persons had completely missed the whole point of Christian teaching. They'd swerved away from what it should all be about, love which springs from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith and so it's unsurprising that false teaching produced speculation about vain things rather than sure and certain faith in Christ it's not surprising that it produced conflict and controversies instead of love now of course we have to realise much conflict and controversy happens because people are being faithful to Christ and the gospel is being proclaimed. That will always produce opposition from, from outside, from those who are not Christ's. And on the other hand, stopping false teaching, well, that is the loving thing to do, even if it does lead to conflict. But when a group of Christians are characterised not by love, but by strife, well, we should be very wary we should take a careful look at what is being taught. Because false teaching is opposed to God and it's dangerous. Taking people away from faith in Christ and the love that that produces and leaving them confused and in conflict. A sorry state. So in fighting false teaching we have two tests. The test the source is it apostolic and test the fruit is it love. But if that wasn't bad enough I'm afraid these certain persons uh, these false teachers uh, were, were 
were doing something else terrible as well. They completely misunderstood the use of the law. They completely misunderstood the use of the law. Verses 7 to 11 continue. They desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make such confident assertions. Now the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their mothers and fa- their fathers and mothers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The false teachers don't have a clue what the law is about, yet they think they do. And so they go around making confident assertions about it, giving everyone their great pearls of wisdom. Except like everything else they say, it's more like a poison cup. But the thing is, Paul doesn't want their terrible teaching to push Timothy to the wrong conclusions. Just because these people are keen on what they think the law is, it doesn't mean that the law itself is bad. No, no, the Old Testament law was given by God. It is good. It is good, but only if it's used legitimately. You see, there are illegitimate uh, uses of the law as well as legitimate ones. And we, and we see a lot of the illegitimate uses of it in the Gospels. Pharisees and other people who think they've kept the whole law and so, are, and so they're righteous. But the truth is, no one can keep the law. I wonder if you truly understand it. The main legitimate use of the law is to show us that we're guilty before God. And so when we realise that, we are driven to faith. Now, if God had never made known his moral requirements, we would never know that we were guilty of anything. But thank God he has. And when we realise how holy God is, and how strict his law has to be, and so how impossible it is to perfectly please him in the law, well, then we know we could never be righteous before God through the law. And so the only course of action left open for us is to run to God's mercy, to accept his gracious gift of forgiveness of sins and eternal life through faith in Jesus. So when we see that the, the law in that light, we can see that the law is a very good thing indeed. A right understanding of the law drives us to faith. And then, having faith as believers, we can make another good legitimate use of the law. Understood properly, and in the light of the coming of Christ, the law teaches us about the holiness and character of God. And as we get to know God, we get to know how to please him. You see, it's just a general rule. You need to get to know someone if you want to know how to please them. Let's imagine it's Christmas and you want to get me a really big present. You do. It's true. And, and if you didn't know me well, you might decide to get me a nice big parcel of satong. Okay, that means squid and bien, by the way, if you're a little bit lost. Okay, now that would be a very generous gift of you, okay? You'd have to go out of your way to get it, probably put in a big order. It would cost a fair amount of money to cut it up and wrapping it wouldn't be easy but the problem is quite low as I am I really do not like satong in fact I can't stand the stuff I mean if it's really deep fried then okay I might nibble at it if I'm really hungry but the rubbery slimy undeep fried satong I'm afraid I wouldn't be massively pleased at all and it's the same with God in a way um Okay, so, so as, as we get to know him, as we get to know what thoughts, words and actions please him, uh, well, as we get to know him, we get to know what uh, thoughts and actions please him. So we might once have thought that a little white lies might be okay if it does someone a favour. Or that 
homosexual behavior is fine if it's between just two men who are faithful to each other. But if we were to read verse 10, or if we have any understanding of God through the law, we would know that both falsehood and homosexual behavior are abhorrent to God. It would not please him at all. So the law is good if you use it legitimately, but don't try and save yourself with it. That would be like taking a rope that was given to help you and using it to hang yourself instead. And don't stray off into endless myths and genealogies or other pointless things that don't help us understand uh, God better. The law is there to drive us to faith and to teach us about God so we can please him. So in conclusion, uh, imagine, imagine Ridley Scott follows up Gladiator with a film about the early church. I'm not sure what he would call it, uh, but it ends up with Timothy handing over leadership to the uh, pastors and, and teachers of the local churches. As a closing credit, a roll and we hear the stirring soundtrack, uh, we may think, what will happen to this new Christian church? Can it possibly survive, especially with all the falsehood that abounds? Well, yes. Yes, it can. We know that because Jesus promised we would survive. Not because we are great or wise or strong, but by his grace and in despite of our weakness. And we can give great thanks for that. He has kept us. He will keep us. And we can look forward to an eternity with him. But we mustn't think that this is possible without a fight. Being faithful to Christ will always be hard and will involve a fight. Brothers and sisters, that's what we signed up for when we put our trust in Christ. The church will survive, but it will involve us fighting for truth, fighting against false teaching and making sure we don't fall into the grip of false teaching ourselves. Back home in England, there was a road I'd often cycle along, and on it is Martyrs Memorial. There's a picture of it. In memory of three men who were martyred under the then Catholic monarchy for the part they had played in the English Reformation for the part they had played in standing for a genuine apostolic gospel truth from God. On the side of the memorial, you can, um, on the left you can see the, uh, the words on there, and on the right, printed out, are engraved these words. To the glory of God and in grateful commemoration of his servants, Thomas Cramer, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, prelates of the Church of England who near this spot yielded their bodies to be burned, bearing witness to the sacred truths to which they had affirmed and maintained against the errors of the Church of Rome, and rejoicing that to them it was given not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. Faithfulness to Christ, to apostolic doctrine, and the survival of the Church in that part of the world cost those three men their lives. And they died in a pretty horrific way too, being burnt alive. Faithfulness may, may just cost you some friends or an easy time or it may actually cost you your life but just stop and think how crucial it is how much would you personally give for the recent Zimbabwean elections to result in a national leadership that was just and peaceful there what difference could be made to millions of lives by medical researchers in the fields of AIDS, malaria, cancer and heart disease how important is it to the world that we find a solution to the problem of climate change? Well, greater than even all of these is the need for the church to remain faithful and true to Christ. To keep faithful to his rule, rule through his word and to remain faithful ambassadors taking his good news of life 
to a perishing and needy world. And we will need people like you and like me to fight for the truth, to fight false teaching wherever that may be, and to know God through his word, given through the apostles and prophets, so that we may please him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for giving us Jesus to save us and make us your people to start with. And we thank you for giving us your words through the apostles and for revealing your plans to us and for your spirit to help us to live for you and for, for keeping us despite our sin and our weaknesses. Father, we pray, please please help us to uh, be faithful to you and to your truth, even when there is so much pressure to compromise. Help us to keep a firm grip of your biblical truth and to keep believing it and keep proclaiming it. And Father, when we encounter false teaching, please give us both the stomach to fight it as well as the heart to be loving as we do so. And we pray to you that in the end, your church will survive all the attacks of the evil one and it will be all for your glory. Help us, we pray. Amen.